During this season of Advent, I've been telling you some stories about Chip and Joanna Gaines. It's a couple who live in Waco, Texas. They have their own television show called Fixer Upper on HGTV. The whole premise of the story is that they're in Waco. They'll find a, a client who wants a house, and they'll then shop for a Fixer Upper, an old rundown house, and then they will design, and they will come in and fix it, The couple didn't get to see it until the project is done. And then there's a big reveal, and it's exciting. I mean, it's a show that's a lot of fun. There's a lot of family, a lot of faith. They're good people. They've written a book entitled The Magnolia Story, and it's a book that talks about who they are personally and things that you don't really get to see on the television show. When I was reading the book, I learned about Joanna. And how Joanna, for quite some time, struggled with self-esteem. You see, Joanna is a beautiful lady, and she's very intelligent. She's also half Korean. And that didn't bother her as a child growing up. It didn't bother her until she was in the second grade. But in the second grade, when she went to lunch, there was a group of boys who just began to tease her just relentlessly. She was different. They began to tease, harass. Whenever she'd go through the lunch line and she'd get her broccoli and and cheese and rice, they'd start saying, oh, look at the Asian girl. She's eating rice. Everybody was eating rice. But they would tease her. And that's so hard. She finally asked her mother to start fixing her a, a sack lunch Because if you brought a sack lunch, you could eat in a different room. And there were fewer kids there. She wanted to get away from them. You know, 30 years later, she would still be able to talk about those boys who had been so mean. And she said, you know, there was this one kid, a redheaded kid. He was the meanest of all. You don't forget those things when you grow up. The pain can be so real. When you're picked out, And you're picked on. When suddenly, you're different. It was a struggle for her. Her family moved on a very regular basis from Kansas to Texas. And and every couple of years, once she just had made finally friends and settled in, then you had to start all over again in that fear of rejection. It really kind of came to a head her sophomore year. They moved mid-year, and they moved to Round Rock, Texas. And she went to a school that had this large class. And on her very first day, all those fears of being a second grader, feeling not good enough, feeling different, they all came welling back. She walked to the cafeteria, did not make eye contact with anyone, straight through the cafeteria to the restroom and went to a stall and stayed there for the next 30 minutes until she heard the bell ring. She did that every day for the entire semester. Such a feeling of I'm not good enough, I'm different. She got through high school. She went to Baylor University in Waco. Her family had moved there. She got a degree in communications. And then she had an internship in New York City. And when she went to New York City, she started looking around and she saw so many people who were different. So many cultures and such a blending of different people, far more different people than you tend to see 
in Waco, Texas. And as she started looking at all these people, she finally started getting honest about herself. And she finally came to the conclusion, look, I'm either white or I'm Korean or I'm both. But whatever it is, I've got to accept it and deal with it because it's me. It's while she was in New York that her faith also began to grow. You see, she had always gone to church. Her family was very active coming to church. But church was really all about following the rules. God was all about you do the right thing or you get in trouble. And for the first time when she was in New York, God became personal. God became a a gracious friend who was interested in her struggles and her pain and helping her figure out who it was that she was created to be. And as she began to discover a faith with a gracious God who cared and loved her, she also began to deal with the fact that she was different and it set her free. I think that was the message of Christmas to the shepherds in that very first year. It was the message to the shepherds who were different, not as good as everybody else, that God came to proclaim first His love for them and the world. When you and I read the Christmas stories we're reading tonight, I don't think we sometimes get the shock value that Luke wanted us to get. God's coming, and the angels are going to proclaim the Savior of the world has come and is born in Bethlehem. And who receives the message? Shepherds. That feels good to us. We think of the shepherds out in the fields. We think of Mary and Joseph. We think of the wise men. When Luke wrote this, it would have called people's attention. It's a significant part of the story. Shepherds? That's who God announces the birth of His Son to the world? Shepherds were not the popular people. They were not the powerful people. They were not rich people. They were not really religious people. No, they were way down the social scale. They were poor. They were powerless. They couldn't keep kosher. They couldn't follow all the rules. So they weren't good religious people. They were considered unclean. So it's to these people who weren't as good. People who would have been struggling with their own sense of self-esteem. It was to those people that the angels came to say, Glory to God in the highest. A Savior is born. A baby in Bethlehem. That would have got everybody's attention. Because the message at Christmas is God comes, God takes the initiative to express His love for you and me. The people who feel different, maybe not as good as. God's love comes. Through the season of Advent, we've been in a sermon series, Roadmap to Bethlehem. And we said we wanted to look at all the people who make it to Bethlehem on the first Christmas. We've been looking at the wise men. We looked then at Mary. We then looked at Joseph. Tonight I want to look at the shepherds. And what we said was everybody who makes it to Bethlehem 
helps give us an understanding of how do we get to Bethlehem? What's the roadmap to get there so we experience Christ being born into our lives? The shepherds are going to make it because of what the angels say. What the message the angel brings to the shepherds on that first night is what gets them to Bethlehem. And there's three things that I want us to see. First of all, the angel said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, why in the world would the angel say that? It's because the shepherds are out there in the field and they know they haven't been perfect. They haven't been all they could be. They don't feel as good. They are the social outcast. If God is a God of rules and God is showing up, you expect you're in trouble. This isn't going to be good news. An angel shows up, we're going to get it now. That's the feeling. And so the angel says right off the bat, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because God's love is for you. Don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't be afraid to embrace life. The shepherds were those who couldn't do that. They were afraid. And you know, isn't it interesting? Whenever you're afraid, whenever you don't feel good enough, I find it's then that you and I tend to become so critical of other people. It's then we become judgmental and we tear other people down when we're not feeling so good about ourselves. And in the end, we start getting angry at other people and we start saying, it's all your fault. My life is so messed up. And we blame others and we become victims because we don't feel so good about ourselves. You may know somebody like that who's going to be at your Christmas table. I hope you're not that person at the Christmas table. It is easy to start being afraid of life. You know, when we come together tonight on this kind of a night, I, I couldn't help but think about a member of our family of faith, Ida Mae Wilson. What a neat lady. Ida Mae came on most Christmas Eves. She would sit right down here as close as she could. Neat, neat lady. She was a member of this church for almost 70 years. Ida Mae would have been 109 today. Christmas Eve was her birthday. I did her funeral one month ago. She missed being 109 by 31 days. She was 108. She lived an incredible life. She was born in 1907, the same year Oklahoma became a state. 1907, before the first commercial airline flight. 1907, before the first Model T car was sold. She would live through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the turbulence of the 60s, a man walking on the moon, the invention of the internet, the creation of cell phones. She was married for 50 years. She'd have loved to have had children. It never did happen. No, she had a life where she saw so much and there was so much joy and there were difficult times in this world and good things and hard things. The fascinating thing about Ida Mae was she was always happy. And I don't say mostly, I mean always. Whenever she'd come to the line and she would see me on a Sunday morning, always had a smile on her face, always had something good to say. I mean, that's who she was. 
She used to sit right back over here, but then as time went on, she started sitting over here and she'd get close. And the reason was because as she got older, she was losing her hearing. And so she wanted to get closer. And I got to tell you, truthfully, by the time she finally died, she was deaf as a post. You know, you try to talk to her and you had to kind of holler and she'd just smile and like, I really can't hear you. She was here on her 100th birthday. I told you that night. It's her 100th birthday and everybody celebrated. She is here at 101, 102, 103. She didn't make the last few. But she would come. She would sit close. She told me, she said, you know, Bob, I am losing my hearing. It's getting harder to hear you. But I got to tell you, your sermons are getting better. Okay. <laughs> now she loved to tease and she loved to laugh and she had a smile on her face. She loved OU football. She actually went to OU back in 1927. Unusual for women at that day in 1927, be going to college, went to OU, went to a football game. She loved it so much, she didn't miss a season of going to a football game at OU for 80 years. All the way till she was 100 years old in 2007. I mean, she loved life. And she was so healthy and going strong. As I told you, she, she was in such a way that she didn't have children of her own. So she loved her nephews and then nieces and all of the, the great people in her family. And they were so good. They were all family loving her. She did have a special nephew. Paul Woody was a, her nephew. And he was so good to her. And he call, she called him dear one, sweet one, Paul. That was her personality. But Paul was telling me how he took her out when she was 103 to Johnny's. Johnny's was her favorite restaurant where she always wanted to go. He took her to Johnny's. And they had a meal. And, and then he said, you know, Auntie, I, I've noticed you've been kind of slipping a little bit when you walk. What do you think if we got you a walker or a cane? I don't want you to fall. She looked at him for a moment, and then it wasn't dear one or sweet one. She said, nephew, I'll get a cane when I need one. I do not need one. They are for old people. <laughs> She's 103. No, the thing that I loved so much about Ida Mae was truly her spirit. And when she turned 100, this is when Oklahoma's turning 100, they put together some books about what do centenarians have to say? What are their wisdom that they want to pass on? And so she was a part of this book, her picture and her statement. And I want to read you the wisdom that she wanted to pass on at 100 years old. She said, blame no one. I've never had a bad day in my life. I have to live one day at a time. My life today, I can't live it again, so I have only myself to blame if it is wasted. Don't blame anyone. Don't be afraid of life. It may be difficult. It may be hard. You may have experienced rejection and you question, am I good enough? Am I different? Don't be afraid. Embrace life. It is why God sent His Son into the world to set you free 
so you can be who you have been created to be. But secondly, the angels would say, I have for you good news of a great joy. I have for you good news of a great joy. That's not something the shepherds were used to hearing. You have good news of a great joy for me? It would be for the whole world. But he said, it's for you. Good news, great joy. I even want to invite you to go to Bethlehem to be at the manger. A sign for you will be a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You are invited. You are invited to the birth to be there. I got good news of a great joy for you. Talk about a word of affirmation. Talk about a word of encouragement. I was telling you about Joanna Gaines and the struggle that she had had with her self-esteem. Whenever she got through with her internship in New York, she moved back to Waco, Texas. She went to work for her dad who owned a Firestone uh, tire store. And she was working there and she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. She didn't want to work in communications. She discovered that in New York. She's working for her dad. And that's when she met Chip. They got married. But she began to reflect on it and say, you know, I discovered at this point in my life, I had spent so much time in my life worrying about what everybody else was going to think of me. I spent so much of my life worrying, I'm not good enough. I spent so much of my life trying to do the things that were expected of me, and I never think about what did I want to do. And so she started looking deeper now, and what she discovered was she loved designing things, decorating homes. She started working with Chip, flipping houses. She'd do the designing and the decorating, and she had no training in it, but she loved doing it. And one night she finally confided him and said, you know what my dream is? One day, one day I would love to have my own home decor store. I saw many neat places in New York, and I know just what I want. It's not just a store to sell things. No, I want lots of fresh flowers you can buy, and candles, and Frank Sinatra playing. No, it's an experience when you come into the store. I know what I want to create one day. And it was Chip who said, well, that's today. Today? We couldn't do that. Why not? If that's your dream, let's do it today. She had never really thought about that possibility. He said, go look around. Let's find some place that we can fix up. She shopped. She found a place. It was really run down, but it would be a perfect place. About 45000 they could buy it, maybe turn it into her shop. They got all excited, came up with the cash to try to put down a down payment. And as they got close to closing, suddenly lots of friends and relatives came out of the woodwork to say, don't do it. It's too big a risk. You don't know anything about running a retail business. You don't know anything about designing. You were not trained. You've never done something like this before. You will fail. Don't do this. Her confidence just cratered. It was Chip who said, look, I believe we can do this. You ought to try. So they bought it. 
She started going to flea markets, started going to antique um, markets, started going to Dallas market, trying to buy different things to sell in the store, trying to learn her own taste. At the same time, they were renovating the shop. I mean, it would take them close to a year to get it done and be ready to open. But she started working on it Christmas 2004. She'd gone to a flea market, and there she found a a big wicker brown sleigh. And she thought, it's $5. $5. I can take this home. I can fix it up, sell it, 25 bucks. She bought it, and she brought it home, and she got some some ivy, and, and she put some Christmas lights on it and fixed it all up. She took it down to her father and said, could you put this in the waiting room here at at our shop? I bet it's going to sell. I said, absolutely. So he put out the sleigh, $25. A week later, she called and said, has it sold? No, not yet. Another week went by. She called, dad, has it sold? No, not yet, but it will. Another week went by. Dad, is it sold? No, not yet, but I know it will. Well, if it doesn't sell in the next day or two, I'm going to come pick it up and get it out of your way. Again, her her confidence just cratered. Maybe she shouldn't be opening up a store. Maybe she didn't have good taste. Maybe she wouldn't find things people wanted. A couple days later, she came by the store, and there was her father standing there, smile on his face, Uh, an envelope saying, I told you it would sell. It meant so much. He said, now look, you got $25, take 20, reinvest it, you buy something and you sell it for 50. That's the way that retail is going to work. It just buoyed her confidence up. Maybe she could do this. She continued to shop flea markets and things and buy. It was almost the end of next year when finally they were ready to open. She and Chip had figured out it's going to cost $200 a day profit just to cover the note and the overhead, the electricity, the insurance. And it wasn't until that day that she suddenly thought, what if we don't make it? What if we don't make $200 a day? Then what are we going to do? And on the day she was going to open her shop, she freaked. She freaked. She started having a genuine panic attack She started hyperventilating. This shop was going to open at 10 o'clock and at 5 till, she was breathing so hard. Chip said, I thought we're going to have to take her to the emergency room. They opened the doors and people came. At the end of the first day, she had made $2,800. And it was just on from there. As you know, they have such great retail now and they do the fixing of homes and they have their television show she has had such success. But she talked about how after they just opened the shop, they came to Christmas. Her father made the decision to sell the Firestone tire store. If Joe didn't want to take it, then he decided to sell. And so it was that Christmas that Joe and, uh, went over there with Chip to help him start unpacking, getting everything cleaned out of the shop. And when she did, she went up into the attic. And when she went into the attic, she looked over And there in the corner of the attic, she saw it. There was her sleigh. It suddenly hit her. It was her father who had bought it. Because he loved her so much, he wanted to encourage her. 
And it worked. Christmas is where your heavenly father loved you so much. He wanted to encourage you. And so it's an expression of his love. So that you don't have to be afraid that you're not good enough, that you're different. You can embrace life now, who you are and your dreams because of God's love for you. The angel said, I have good news and great joy for you. And third, suddenly it says there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God and highest and on earth peace. And on earth peace. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, when you come to know what it means to be loved by God, when you discover that compassionate God, it changes what's going on. Instead of being afraid, you feel loved and encouraged. It brings you peace. It's not that your life just got easy. It's not that everything suddenly worked out. It's not that everything is good. No, life is life. And quite often, life's hard. And there are struggles. But it is in the midst of the struggles that we discover God's love for us. And when you know that, you're not afraid. You find peace. It's the miracle of Christmas. Just recently, I had a call from a good friend of mine, Dr. Mike Berry. He and his wife, Frankie, they, they used to live in Houston. And when Marsh and I lived in Houston, we were really close friends. We still are today, but we used to get to run around together. He was a member of the church. He and Frankie, they had three kids, and they were just, they were neat kids, and we all had a lot of fun. They were the same age as our children, and, and so we did lots of things together. I got to know Mike's dad, Charles, Charles Berry. I knew him as Chuck and his mom, Dell. It turned out that Chuck was a fascinating guy. He worked for NASA back in the 50s and the 60s. In fact, it was his father who was the flight surgeon who was instrumental in choosing the original seven astronauts. I mean, he knew everybody. I, I, I mean, he would be able to talk to Alan Shepard or John Glenn. Or, he knew them all. And they would invite me to come to their Christmas parties and I would come to their open houses and I got to meet all these astronauts. And I got to tell you, it was so much fun. It was so cool to get to meet them. And, I, and then I loved to sit and visit with Chuck because he had stories to tell. There were so many stories about what life was like back in the 50s and then the 60s and as we're trying to get to the moon. And oh man, I mean, he knew Chuck Yeager who broke the sound. I mean, he knew them all. And man, we would visit well, Chuck is now in his 90s. He and his wife, Dell were a special couple, and they were married almost 70 years. It was several years ago now. Dell became ill. We thought she was not going to make it, but she did. She was a fighter. She rallied. She was able to come home. It had been a two-year struggle, but she made it back home. But when it came to Christmas that year, she wanted to go to the mall and go shopping. 
And that was a challenge. I mean, she was in very poor health, but her daughter was there. She rallied. We will make that happen. She got her up and dressed and into a wheelchair. She managed to get her to the mall. And when Dell got to the mall where she wanted to go shopping was at Build-A-Bear. Now, every grandparent has been to Build-A-Bear. I've been to Build-A-Bear. No, she went to Build-A-Bear, and what she wanted to do was she chose a bear, and she wanted to choose the clothes to dress this bear to look like Chuck. And then she got some spectacles, glasses, just like he wore, and she got those and put them on the bear. And then she got one of those hearts where you can record a saying, your own voice, before they put it into the bear. And she wanted to have her own message. And so even though her voice was weak, she managed to get her message recorded. And then she brought the bear home for his Christmas present. And on Christmas morning, when he opened it up and he sees this bear, he can't help but laugh and smile. How much fun. And then they say, well, just push the chest. And they, he pushed the chest. And suddenly there he heard Dell say, I love you, my darling Charles. Merry Christmas. It was so special. It really became special three months later when she died. It became his most prized possession. It was several years ago now. The bear sits on the bed all the time. Never goes anywhere else. It sits on the bed on the side where she used to lie. And every night... When he goes to bed, the last thing that he does is he pushes the bear. And he hears his wife's voice say, I love you, my darling Charles. Merry Christmas. And when he hears his wife's voice express her love, he's able to go to sleep in peace. It's when you and I hear God speak this Christmas. I love you. You don't have to be afraid. There's good news of a great joy for you. It's then that you know peace. You make it to Bethlehem. I hope tonight you will listen to hear the angels sing. Merry Christmas.